glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Would you stand with me, please, as we respect and honor the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32. Now, let me just put this in context. Paul is dealing with the truth of the resurrection, that it's not a myth, not a fairy tale, it's a fact and how that the truth of the resurrection affected his ministry and how it should affect our lives. And so he has already dealt with the fact if Christ is not raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. He says this in verse 32, If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Just pause right there. Wouldn't you say there's many a professing Christian that has that attitude? Let's just enjoy life. Being a Christian is about being able to enjoy this life. Eat, drink, and die. Don't worry about the future, eternity. Uh, that's, that's his point. If there is no resurrection, then just eat and drink and die. Just live this life. Verse 33, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your Shame. Now, Paul does something there that is taboo today, and that is speaking something in order to intentionally cause someone to be ashamed. But he did. So, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So, 1 Corinthians 15 is more on a negative side, a, a reproving, rebuking side of things. 2 Timothy 3, 10, 11 is more from the standpoint of exhortation. And so, Paul says this to Timothy as he is persuading Timothy to be faithful once he is absent and departed. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10, he says, But thou hast fully known, talking to Timothy, thou hast fully known my doctrine. What's the next thing he says? Manner of life. Manner of life. Purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all. The Lord deliver me. Uh, thank you. You may be seated. I just want to read those verses as an example of what we're dealing with tonight. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. And then he tells Timothy, Thou hast fully known my doctrine. And the next thing he says is manner of life. The question would be, Does God only care about saving you and keeping you out of hell? Or is he also concerned once he saved you, with how we live our lives. We know the answer to that. Of course he's concerned with how we live our lives as Christians. Uh, what, what happens today, and I, I hope to, to help give just some instruction and teaching, I, as we deal with issues such as manner of life, and you have other people that profess faith in Christ, when our manner of life is, is different in some way than the manner of life of someone else, you know as well as I do, we've all been on the experiencing end of this. Perhaps someone else won't partake of something or engage in something we do. We often get defensive and want to attack their manner of life because it is in some way a reproof or a repudiation of us, or at least we think so. When the truth is, when you've aligned your life, the way you live, the way you speak, uh, the places you'll go, the way you eat or drink or what you'll eat or drink or what you'll put on, just about the way you live, your deportment, your response to, to problems, your response to challenges, uh, how you will retort to someone who mistreats you, all those things are our manner of life. They're how we conduct ourselves in this life. When you have aligned yourself with the Bible, with God's Word, under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God, 
and you are around another professing Christian who has not aligned in that same way, it creates animosity. If you, if you do that around an unbeliever, it creates some animosity. There is a, a reproof that's taking place. Your obedience to God ends up being a reproof to the one who's not obeying God. And therefore, there's a, there's a, a, then a decision has to be made on the part of the person being reproved. Am I going to attack the manner of life that has reproved me? Or am I going to conform to it? Am I going to take instruction from that or get angry at that? And so in a, in a world today where, especially in America, where reproof is a despised thing because of pride, talking about it by and large in the culture, and that's by and large in any culture because of sin. But when that is the, especially in our culture, where there's so, so much pride, then immediately what has happened is there have been doctrines developed to teach us that the manner of life you have as a Christian doesn't matter. That all God is concerned about is saving you because God is love and God just wants you to be saved and be in heaven. All those things are true. But because that's all that God's concerned about, then immediately the argument is used when you say, well, I don't believe that it's right for a Christian to get a tattoo on their body. That's a manner of life issue. Would you agree? Those are your legalists. Well, I'm not a legalist. You say, we have to go back to the Old Testament law to say you shouldn't tattoo your body. I believe I have Christian liberty. Plus, you tell me if I have a tattoo, I'm going to hell. I was discussing this week with a, uh, another man, a pastor, about the subject of which Bible translation we use. And he asked me the question. He said, do you believe that I'm not truly a Christian pastor because I use a new American standard? I said, no, I, I, I don't believe that. Has anyone ever told you that? But that was the assumption that because you've made a, ch- a choice... Uh, of manner of life and how we're going to handle the written word of God, that you must believe I'm not a Christian based on what translation I'm using. I believe there's a lot of people that are lost because they've been under a wrong translation. They're not hearing a clear presentation of the gospel, but I believe someone's truly saved can get and use the wrong translation of the Bible. Then his follow-up question was, do you believe people are wrong for using another translation in English? Well, I do, but that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. <laughs> you with me tonight? And so the same thing is done in so many areas of life. And we disagree over manner of life. I don't believe a Christian should drink alcohol. Oh, you believe that someone's on their way to hell. Well, if they're a drunkard, the drunkards do not inherit the kingdom of God. We're supposed to repent of that. Amen? But the fact of the matter is, uh, when we're talking about manner of life, people immediately assume if you, you disagree on manner of life, what you're saying is your manner of life saves you. Your manner of life does not save you, but your manner of life does indicate that you're saved. Amen? And so God, here's what I want to see tonight. God has a lot to say about our manners. Uh, here's what a manner, what manners are according to Webster's and according to Strong's concordance. Uh, a manner is a form, a method, or a way of performing or executing. Form, method, or way of performing or executing. It is a custom, or notice this, a habitual practice. Habit, so we're not just talking about something you do once or twice, but a habitual practice. That's Webster's 1828, a definition of the word. Manners in 1 Corinthians 15.33 means this, moral habits. Moral habits. You getting the idea? We're talking about the habits of our life. What is the habitual practice of our life? Is it my habitual practice when something goes wrong and that I wasn't expecting to use a verbiage that I would never use in the church house? If that's my habitual practice, I need to clean my manners up. Amen? We're going to continue. I'm going to use a lot of examples tonight with God's help so that we can see that our manner of life, number one, it needs to be established. The Bible says that when we're wise, all our ways will be 
established, meaning we will have a manner of life that is consistent with God's Word, and it is vitally important that we do so. I believe every one of us in this room tonight have a desire to see lost sinners who are on their way to hell get saved. Make no mistake, our manner of life has everything to do with that. Everything to do with that. We are epistles written of God, read of men. Lost men do not read the Bible. Lost men read Christians. And we must know that. And so then, there will be much application. We'll give you three things tonight on our manners, on good manners. We can have good manners. We can have bad manners. Ask yourself tonight, what's my habit of life? What can people count on me to do or not do? What can I be counted on? Those that know me, those that I interact with in my workplace, uh, those that know me in my home, those in this church that know me well enough to know the way I live, what can I be counted on to do on a regular, habitual basis? That's our manner of life. And so then, uh, let's dig into this just a little bit, all right? I want to begin tonight with the Constitution of Good Manners, okay? If we're talking about good manners, and manners is it has to do with our habitual practice, then how do we get good manners constituted in our life where, where, where we, are, we are habitually doing what is right, where we have moral manners or moral uh, habits that are good. Go to Second Peter now, if you would, Second Peter chapter 3. And again, this is not merely a how-to. This should be instruction more than to our minds but to our hearts. Uh, if I'm concerned tonight about being what God has saved me to be, then I need to be attentive to this say, okay, how do I plug this into my living? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, Peter says this, but beloved. Now notice who he's writing to, but beloved. That is key to constituting good manners. Lost people cannot truly have good manners. They can have a good exterior. They can have some things in their life that are right. But for manners to be truly good, they have to be rooted in the right, uh, the right motive of heart and so forth. So he says, but beloved... Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then, notice verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What's the next words here? What manner, what type, what... And I know it's used in a different form here. Manner here has to do with what kind or type, but it carries the same idea of a pattern. What pattern of person or manner of person, he goes on to say, uh, seeing that all these things should be dissolved, uh, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? So manner has to do with what... What kind of a pattern of holy conversation and godliness should you be if you know these things? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, who's he say again? Beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot, 
and blameless. He goes on to talk, and we'll read these other verses later, about how that uh, we should account the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul has written. And again, we'll come back to these verses before the message is done. But in these verses, he talks about what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness. He's dealing with the manner of life again and how our lives should be defined and our lives should be able to be characterized as holy and godly. Holy has to do with our, with our relationship to the Lord and, and, of course, our relationship to sin because of our relationship to the Lord. Godliness has to do with our pattern of life before men. Remember, godliness is the manifestation of God through a human. It is the character of God. That's why Jesus is the mystery of godliness. He is God in the flesh. But as Christ is formed in us, as His heart for the Father is formed in our heart, as His heart against sin is formed in our heart, that should result in a life that is that is characterized or as a manner of all holy conversation and godliness, could our lives, would somebody point out and say, that is a person that's living a holy life. That is a godly person. They have, they have the heart of God. There is a person that lives to please God. There is a person that reveals the mind of God by the way they live. You know what God is pleased with by what they'll do and what they'll not do. Godliness and holiness should be how our lives are described what God called us unto. It's what Titus 2, 11 through 14 is all about. Uh, now the grace of God hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope. You realize every, almost every time holiness, godliness, and manner of life is mentioned for the Christian, there is reference to the coming of Christ. There is reference to... It's what 1 Corinthians 15 was all about. Do you realize why the Corinthians' lives were so marked by sin? They had people teaching them that they weren't even going to be raised from the dead. That once you die, you just go in the dirt. You just go to sleep. Don't you worry about that. The resurrection is figurative. It's not literal. You're not going to be raised from the dead. They, 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 they twisted the Scripture and twisted the Word of God to where there was no confidence that once you leave this life, you're actually going to stand before the Lord and give an account. Well, if you don't think you're going to give an account, then as Paul said, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That tells us, and please don't miss this tonight, that tells us why many times we have inconsistent lives when it comes to holiness and godliness. We're living for today, how I feel right now. We're living for the next uh, feeling of pleasure. We're living for the next gratification. We're living for what the guy that's watching me right now, how he'll think highly of me. We're not living toward the judgment seat of Christ. We're living toward the moment today. How do I feel today? I'm just eating and drinking and being merry. Because I'm not concerned about eternity. I'm not concerned about the judgment seat. And so then the, the constitution of good manners begins with us obviously having a sanctified position. We have to be one of the beloved, accepted, as the Word of God says, in the beloved, as Ephesians says, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so if we are accepting the beloved, meaning we have the indwelling Holy Spirit in us and we are part of the family of God, that's step number one. That's what Peter deals with. He's writing to the beloved. But we also must have a sincere persuasion that the things that God has told us through Christ about the future, how many of us believe we were created? If you believe the Bible, you have to. If you and I don't believe we're created, we're liars and we say we're believers. We must believe that the Lord Jesus is coming again in the future as much as we believe he created us in the past. 
We take creation by faith. We must take the return of Christ by faith. And Peter is reminding them in 2 Peter 3, don't forget that the world you live in, one of these days, is going to be burned up. It's going to be consumed with the wrath of God. So don't live for the here and now. Live for then. Live for the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's got to be a sanctified position through faith in Christ. I've been accepted in the beloved. I am a member of the family of God. But as a member of the family of God, he says, seeing, verse 11, that all these things shall be dissolved. You know what he's assuming? I am assuming you are taking what I'm telling you as an absolute fact. Amen? If, if we knew for sure that if we did not, uh, let's say we knew for sure someone tonight was going to break in our houses at 11.45 p.m. and steal everything we had. We knew it. Let's say somebody called and said, hey, I was in town today and I heard a couple of people and your name came up. A couple of people were talking and these are some ruffian kind of a guys and they were talking about an address and they named your address and named your name and said they expected you to be sound asleep at 11.45. They're planning on breaking in, stealing everything you own and shooting you in the process if they have to. What would you and I do? We'd prepare. The exact analogy the Bible says, if you knew the hour the thief was coming, you'd be ready. And here's what happens. Many Christians say they believe Jesus Christ is coming again, but their lives tattle. Don't believe it. Not sincerely. We don't take it seriously. I'm not saying we don't accept it as a fact. We don't let that fact affect our living. Here's how we know that. If we're willing to conduct ourselves in a way that would shame us to death if the Lord Jesus walked in the room. Shame us. Oh, I cannot believe he caught me doing. I cannot believe he caught me saying. I cannot believe he caught me laughing at. I cannot believe he caught me. If we're willing to habitually live in those things, we don't, we're, not, we're not living for his return. We know it. We, we accept it. But there's got to be a sincere persuasion that he is coming and the world as we know it is going to be dissolved. And we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. There's got to be a sanctified position. We have to be in the beloved. But we have to have a sincere persuasion that the things he's told us concerning his return, that he's not, as verse 9 says, he's not slack concerning his promise. The gap of time between the ascension of Christ and his return has nothing to do with his unfaithfulness. It has to do with his wisdom and his timing and his long-suffering. As what Peter's reminding them, the Christians in Second Peter that he's writing to were suffering at the hands of, of persecution of wicked men. And Peter's having to remind them, hey, the Lord's promise is still true. Don't let the pressures of persecution get you to stop obeying the Lord. Today, our pressures may not be persecution. They may be pressures from some other, from some other place. But we should live our lives sincerely knowing that what the Lord is... May I say this? If the Lord is not coming again, if He is truly and genuinely not going to return, and if there is truly no such thing as a judgment seat, if He is not truly in flesh and bones in heaven today, awaiting the word of the Father to come again, I'm, I'm telling you, take your Bible, go park it on a thrift store shelf and live your life some other way. Because if that's not true, nothing's true. The, the, the promise of his return is more clear, as clear as anything in the Bible. And so if that's not true, and we're not convinced it's true, then just take your Bible, check it in, get you a scientific textbook, and live however you feel with the seat of your pants. Just live life flying, flying by your own whims and wishes. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And we've got to settle this matter. Is what he said true? If it's not, then our, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, then our faith is in vain. We have believed a fairy tale. And by the way, we have to, look, we have to reckon with those things in our heart and our mind. There has to be a point where I say, either I have believed the truth 
or I have believed a lie. And if you've believed a lie, you need to repent of it. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that any of it is a lie. But when we treat it like it's not true, we have to understand why. Why do I not live in light of his coming? And there's part of that that has to do with just faith because we can't see it. It's not in front of us. It's easy to get caught up in the events of the world, but that's why we have a Bible and why we have the Holy Spirit and a message like tonight to remind us, but it is true and he is coming. And if we're going to have good manners, we have to live not by what man sees, but by what Christ sees. We have to live according to his eyes and according to the truth that he's coming and the truth that we're going to stand before him and give an account for the things done in our body. And so we, have a, we must have a sanctified position, we must be born again in the family of God, a sincere persuasion that the promise concerning his return and the judgment seat and the judgment that is to come, all those things are true. And that should then give us a sober perspective. Verse 12, he says, verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons seeing that you know what's coming in the future, what manner of persons ought ye to be? Meaning, your knowledge of the future, and this is a tremendous reminder as we move toward the book of Revelation, you know what's coming, then that ought to affect what you're doing now. Uh, seeing what manner of persons you ought to be, or that these things should be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be, in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire should be dissolved, and the elements should melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, because of all the things I've just said, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, you're in the family of God, you have a sincere persuasion these things are coming, seeing that these things are true, and you look for such things, be, what's it say next? Diligent. How many times does Peter use the term diligent or diligence concerning our Christian living? Be Diligent, meaning stay on top of this matter. Don't go to sleep spiritually. Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. That has to do with in fellowship with God, not, 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 not with distress because you're out of fellowship, having peace with God, having made peace with God as do with peace with one another as well. Without spot means without sin in your life that you know is actively going on that's not approved in his sight. And then without blameless, it seems to me I have to do with abstaining from all appearance of evil. Not just the truth of evil, but even the appearance or the opportunity opened in your life. And so he said, You've got, you, look, how many of us know we are not saved by being diligent? This has nothing to do with being saved. This has to do with how we are found before him at his coming. He said, because you know these things, you've got to be diligent that, when, that you are ready to meet him as a believer with peace, without spot, and blameless. That's dealing with what manner of persons, how we ought to be conducting ourselves upon his return. And so the constitution of good manners begins with having a position in the family of God, having a sincere persuasion of the promises of God, a sober perspective about what's coming and a singular purpose. What is our purpose? That we be found of Him in peace without spot and blameless. Meaning we are living for what He's going to see and what He's going to find us doing upon His return. In the parables, when the Lord Jesus spake in the parables, He talked about not sleeping because He's coming as a thief in the night and we are to watch and be sober because He's coming. May I say this, when we start living for ourselves and what we want, when we start living for the world's acceptance and approval, friend, we're getting out of line in our manners. 
So this, the constitution of good manners, it takes, number one, being saved. Number two, being convinced fully and having personal conviction. Don't miss this tonight. Personal conviction that the words of God are true concerning what's coming our way. And then that leads us. When you do not truly take God at His word, we can have a right perspective. And then we have a singular purpose. I am living for His approval. Look very quickly at 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. And I'll say this, if there's anything the Spirit of God is impressing on this church at this hour in the history of this church, it is what I'm preaching to you right now, that we must live for His approval and nothing else. We must live for the eyes of Jesus Christ, not live for our own approval, not live for our own reputation, not live for what the community thinks of us, not live for what our family thinks of us, not live for what people in another place think of us, not live for what our co-workers think of us. We must live for what Jesus Christ sees us and thinks of us. And if we're not living that way tonight, then the message is here to adjust us, to correct us. Uh, and where, where, where sin creeps into our lives as believers is when we start living for some other motive, some other purpose than his approval. Second Corinthians chapter 5. There's so much debate today about what is right and what is wrong for Christians. Do you know where that debate comes from? It does not come from simply looking at how can we please him. Someone says, I want to do this. You, you give me chapter and verse why I can't. I can't help a person like that because you've already decided my goal is to do what I want. And unless somebody tells me I can't, I'm going to. Now we're outside of what Christianity really is. Because he loved me, because he saved me, I love him back and I want to do what pleases him. Second Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says Paul, speaking of how he labored and uh, what was the motivation for their labor, he says in verse 8, we are confident, there's that sincere persuasion, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Did Paul have any question what was going to happen to him once he died? No, he knew with, beyond a shadow of a doubt. When I leave my body, I'll be with the Lord. Verse 9, wherefore, because of this truth, because we walk by faith, not by sight, verse 7 said, we are confident to be absent from the body and, uh, and willing rather to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present, meaning in our bodies, or absent, we may be what? accepted of him. Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. This constitution of good manners comes from having a sincere persuasion in the word of God which leads to a sober perspective about things to come and how we should live now and a singular purpose. We live for his approval, for his acceptance. Not being accepted into the family, but being acceptable to him, meaning my life being acceptable in his sight. When you get a hold of that, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we live. Uh, and may I say this, when we have two people, you take a, a, a seasoned Christian who's been walking with the Lord for 25 years, and you get somebody that's been saved for 25 days. But both of them say, the only thing I want to do is please the Savior. This guy back here may have a lot of areas where he's not the same as this guy because he's not been walking with the Lord very long. But they'll fellowship. And this younger brother will have no problem taking instruction, direction, guidance uh, from the older Christian. He'll have no problem changing things in his life. All he needs to see is what does God say. I've watched people in my life in the last six months, both present and in other places, all they needed was a little hint from Scripture as to what the mind of God was. And there wasn't like twisting or arguing or persuading them to change. It was, all right, I'm done then. I see what the Bible says. Oh, friend, that's so refreshing. So refreshing uh, to see a hunger to please the Lord and adjustment of life because of that. And so the constitution of good manners. Number two, the case for good manners. Now, 
in preaching on the constitution of it, meaning the establishment of good manners in our life. We have to be saved, have a personal conviction in the truth of God's word, a perspective that aligns with that conviction, and a purpose that that is singular and, and simply pleasing the Lord. So the case then for good manners is, number one, that we might have the approval of our master. What is the case for it? Well, we want to we want to be found of him, as we saw in Second Peter three fourteen, in peace, without spot, and blameless. Not bringing harm to his name. Here's the idea: blameless and and without spot has to do with my own life not defiled by some disobedient, unclean, sinful behavior that I know is displeasing that he saved me from. Not to. Uh, the idea of blameless, again, having the idea of not being harmful to another person, being above reproach, uh, not bringing shame to the Lord's name nor harm to another person. That's the way the Lord wants us to live our lives. Not, not going about being troublemakers and sowers of discord, but uh, being peacemakers by doing what is right, not by compromise, but by conviction, being willing to suffer for reproach rather than cause others to suffer. Amen. And so then, uh, the case for good manners is that our singular purpose. And every other case we make for it flows out of this one purpose. The case is, number one, we want the approval of our master, which we've established. Number two, though, the case for good manners, it is by our good manners that others are made aware of the truth of God. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15, if you would. Do you know why so many people today, why it is so, so much more popular uh, today for people in our culture, one of the reasons that it's more popular to be agnostic or atheistic, there's no one confronting them daily with the reality of God by the manner of life. How many of you are confronted daily with someone that is other than in your home, somebody out in the public that is so in love with the Lord that their life is an evidence of the truth of the God of the Bible? And I understand, we don't expect the whole world to be that way, but every Christian ought to be. Every Christian ought to be a light. That's what we're to be. And our light is our good works. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, once again, verse 32. If after the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die." Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Then what's he saying in verse 34? Awake to righteousness. Wake up to what is right. Get, get alert to doing right. Quit being ignoring doing right. Awake to righteousness. And what is the next three words? And sin not. You know how many people believe that is an impossible commandment? If tonight you're born again and convinced that you have to live in sin, You've been deceived in one of two ways. Either you've been deceived in thinking you're born again. Or you've been deceived in thinking that as being born again, you're still in bondage to sin when you are not. God tells us. You know how many Christians believe tonight? It is just to be expected that Christians will go ahead and live in sin. Because we say, here's what happens. How many of us know you're not going to be sinlessly perfect until you get a new body? But often that truth becomes a license and a permission to continue in sin that we have been liberated from. God says, awake to righteousness and sin not. Meaning, get alert to what is right in your life. Get your eyes open to what is right in your life. Do what is right and stop sinning. Don't yield to sin. Serve righteousness. Why? He says, for many, for some have not the knowledge of God. 
meaning your lack of good manners and engaging in sin that God saved you from has kept people blinded to the truth of the reality of God. Some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Notice the context of this. The context of this is not evangelism so much in preaching the gospel, meaning what profession comes out of our mouth, but the practice of our life. The context is good manners. And he said, you've allowed your good manners to be corrupted. You're not doing what's right. And as a result, some have not the knowledge of God. Shame on you. Meaning 1 Peter 3.15 says it this way, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Do you know what sin in the life of the Christian does? It shuts our mouth. We feel too ashamed to speak up for the Lord because we know our life does not represent the profession we make. And so nothing stymies bold preaching more than defeat in the life of a child of God, than good manners not being present. I said a few moments ago that if we, if we tonight think I have to sin, I have no choice, I am bound to sin, then I'm deceived in one of two ways. Either I think I've been born again and I have not, and I'm not here to, sh- to cause you to doubt. That is not my point. We are born again by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior tonight, He saved you. If you're trusting something else or you've never trusted him, then you need to be saved. But the truth is, so many a child of God is deceived in the second fold. And that is, well, yes, I'm saved, but there are certain sins that just can't be conquered. I'm bound to certain live in certain ways. There's a language issue. How many people have said, I just can't help it. I got some language problems, got a little anger issue, and I just can't help it. I have to let it slip. That's deceit. And a Christian that lets one or two or five slip in the presence of unbelievers, it may seem minor to the Christian, but to the unbeliever, it's a dismissal of the God we claim to love and trust. And it's just the truth of it. Our good manners, it's about the Lord's approval. It's not about salvation. It's not about, uh, it's not about gaining favor with God. We gain favor with God through faith in Jesus Christ, but it is about His approval on our lives. Remember what's going to be judged at the judgment seat, the things done in our bodies the manner of life is going to be judged as to whether it is good or bad and good manners we've talked about how they're established but here the case is number one good manners meet our master's approval they please the lord they represent his character he went about doing good the lord jesus never did anything on this earth while he walked it to hurt one soul sin no matter how private that sin or how public that sin, sin always hurts someone. And it always hurts someone even beyond ourselves. Some say, well, my sin only hurts me. Hogwash. Sin always damages somebody. That's why we're to abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. So the case for good manners, it, it pleases our Savior. Number two, it makes men aware of the truth and reality of the presence of God. It is our good manners that show people there is a God in heaven by our living pure and holy lives unto the Lord, that they can see that the God we're serving is is manifest through our obedience. Letter C, under the case of good manners, is the assurance or persuasion of men. It not only makes men aware of the truth of God, good manners are not only a reproof to the unbeliever, they are an assurance to the saved. Look at Acts chapter 20. Paul understood that how he behaved as a preacher would determine how his message was responded to. He would use his manner of life as a case for why he should be listened to. He would use the way he lived among people as, because I have lived right, you need to listen to what I have to say. Meaning, 
our good manners, is, it's like evidence in court to persuade someone of the truth of what we're saying. So here's the opposite. When I have a true message, but my life doesn't match my message, it undercuts and undermines the, 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 the integrity of what we have to say. It is, Christian, it is so important that our conduct match our pers- profession. Because it has to do with persuading men. It has to do with, with giving that second witness that verifies what I'm saying to you is truth. And that applies both to the Christian and the unbeliever. It's why Paul told Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. In word, meaning what you say, but then what's the next thing he says? In conversation. In what you say and in what you do. In word and conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. He said, Timothy, if they're not going to dismiss you because of your age, you're going to have to show them by the way you live that you are, are credible. Credibility is earned with, look, God looks on the heart. Men do not. Men don't look at the heart. Men look at our lives. That's what James 2 is all about. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. Listen, friend, this is why Satan, if you're saved tonight, attacks your manner of life. He knows that if he can get us to compromise and corrupt our manner of living, if he can corrupt good manners, if he can get us to talk with a potty mouth, if he can get us to dress immodestly, to look and lust, if he can get us to behave like the world, to let our anger fly, to 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 uh, to revenge people, you fill in the blank. But if he can get our manner of life corrupted, he doesn't. He's not robbed us of salvation, but he's robbed the people around us of the knowledge of God. He has robbed people of hearing and being persuaded that the truth of God is truth. And so then our our manner of life has to do with assuring men of the truth of the gospel and of the direction for spiritual growth and progress. Acts 20, verse 17, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. So who's Paul speaking to? He's talking to spiritually matured men. Verse 18, And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia... After what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, that was his attitude, and with many tears, that was his, his, his love and his charity, and temptations, that's the test of his faith, which befell me by the lying in the weight of Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you, that's a demonstration of his living, and have taught you publicly and from house to house. He goes on talking about his, both his manner and his message. He's talking to spiritually matured Christians, but he's got another message for them. He's going to charge the men of, of Ephesus, the elders, to, to take heed to themselves and to the flock and know that grievous wolves will enter in. And how does Paul establish his credibility with these men? He says, you know what manner of man I've been among you. You know what manner of person. When Paul was charging Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.10 to press on, continue to serve the Lord, what evidence does he use to say, Timothy, listen to me, follow what I'm saying. You have fully known my doctrine, what I've taught you, and manner of life. You know that my life has been consistent with my message. May I say this tonight? If we dismiss the consistent manner of a godly person, we will be held accountable for that. If we do not give that to others to watch and see what I believe is true. Listen, it doesn't matter how, how eloquently we can argue for the positions we hold. The greatest argument for the positions we hold is the life we live. We ought to be able to be unashamed and say, you know my manner of life. You know how I live. And say, so please hear what I have to say. Whether it be an unbeliever who is questioning the truth of the gospel or a, believer, a fellow believer who is questioning the way of holiness. 
No, we ought to be able to say our manner of life has not questioned or caused another to doubt the truth of God's Word. It should be a persuasion of it. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, he references the same thing to the Thessalonians. He, he references how he and his fellow laborers behaved themselves when they lived among the Thessalonians and ministered to them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, he says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only. I mean, it wasn't just what we said, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. And then what's he say? And in much assurance. How much assurance? Then he references why it was given in much assurance. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. He says, you know the kind of people we were. Now, does the, the kind of person I am the manner of person I am show the power of the gospel or make the gospel look like a joke? We ought to ask that tonight. And it's one of the two. It's one of the two. We ought to, we ought to ask the Holy Spirit of God to tell us, does my manner of living demonstrate that God still saves souls from sin and gives victory? Or does it make the message of the gospel simply look like another message of men? Paul said, you know that our lives among you, you were convinced that it was not just in word only, but in power and the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you. Meaning, you know the way we lived among you, and that is the demonstration that our message was not simply another man's message, but the Word of God. And so then, the case for good manners, it brings, it's, it brings the approval of our Master and His pleasure, which is our primary motivation. But out of that because it pleases him that men would be convinced of the gospel. It makes men aware of the truth of God and assures them of the truth of God. That is what uh, the, uh, good manners do. Thirdly, in closing, the corruption of good manners, which we have seen. But if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's some, some ways that are articulated. We need to notice a few things here. Number one, you must understand, I must understand, good manners can be corrupted in the life of a Christian. You can be saved on your way to heaven and there be a wilting and withering away of good moral habits in your life and mind. None of us, including the man preaching to you, is exempt from this. You can have an established good manners in your life and see that the word corrupted means to deteriorate, to wither or to be broken down. We can see our manner of life deteriorated into inconsistency that brings shadows and doubt on the truth of the gospel. It doesn't make the gospel untrue. It makes it look untrue. It doesn't make God not be real. It makes it look like he's not. And so then he says again, be not deceived. What's the first thing he says? Be not deceived. You know what the first step is in getting our good manners corrupted? We believe lies. We believe lies. It is lies from the devil produced and generated many times by our own fleshly reasoning. But what will break down good manners is, well, I know that would be probably the best thing to do, but, you know, I'm not saved by what I do. So it's harmless if I go ahead and do this. I know it's not what I find is acceptable to the Lord from the Bible, but, you know, we start believing lies. Be not deceived, and he explains exactly what not to be deceived about. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Now, we understand we are surrounded by evil communication. The word communications here doesn't mean simply 
evil things people say or even do. It has to do with our fellowship and friendship. And I'll get into that in just a moment. The word communications there truly fully means friendship and fellowship, companionship, time spent with in agreement and enjoyment. Uh, and so what happens is many times you watch believers get to where we're not trying to convince the lost world to be saved. We're just trying to be friends with them. One of the dangers with, with strategic methods today and trying to get the gospel to people and get them to believe it is, well, we just have to really develop relationships with the lost. I, I agree with that to a point. But if you mean develop friendship with the lost, that's not right. The Bible says the friendship with the world is the enmity with God. Meaning if I'm chummy with unbelievers, we are tight we get along well. I got news for you. There's a lot of professing Christians today get a lot along a lot better with unbelievers and God deniers than they do with Christians. And that's troubling to me. They could far easier sit down with someone who has no problem denying the Lord. They have a lot more agreement and friendship and fellowship with people who have nothing to do with holiness or godliness. And they're angry all the time over people that call to holiness and godliness. It breaks down good manners. So first and foremost, the corruption of good manners. We read here in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. How do we get to the point where we're willing to be interwoven in friendship with godless people? Well, look over if you would Second Peter chapter 3 again, very quickly. We're going to wrap this up because we're out of time. Second Peter chapter 3. We read down through verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent, that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Here in verse 15 it says, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Don't get distressed over the, the time that it takes the Lord to return. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. The context of Second Peter 3 is teaching people to be stable and teaching people to be, uh, to be given to all holy conversation and godliness, the manner of persons you ought to be. But he says, but don't, don't be like these who, when they find something in scripture hard to understand, they rest it. They, they, they chew it through their mind and they say, I don't see how this can be true. I don't see how that can be true. I said earlier the book of Revelation is not hard to understand. Well, I guess there's parts that are hard to believe because we don't fully grasp it and what we might be prone to do is come to places in the bible in our own human reasoning say i find that hard to accept i don't understand that doesn't make sense to me it must not be true because it doesn't make sense to us we begin to to rest it meaning we begin to wrestle with it instead of submitting to the authority of god's word saying i don't understand it but it's got to be true it's god's word we begin to question it we begin to doubt it we begin to put it in a different frame well because it doesn't fit in my mind it must not mean what it says the number one step you and I will make in, in, in having our good manners corrupted is, is challenging and finding fault with Scripture. I want to tell you something. This whole debate over what Bible has nothing to do with scholasticism. It does not. Not today. It may have some four or five hundred years ago. But for English speaking today, it is not a matter of the head. It's a matter of the heart. People say, well, that old English. I got news for you. 
There are verses in this old English Bible that make 100% absolute perfect sense. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness is not hard to understand. But they find one that is hard to understand and rest the entire scripture. He said, as they do also the other scriptures. They've rested the scriptures that were being written in their time and they rested the scriptures that have been written before time. And if you're sitting here tonight finding a hard time agreeing with your Bible, you are in spiritual difficulty. You're in trouble. If I find difficulty simply accepting the authority of God's word, I'm in trouble tonight. And so then, uh, the, the fact of the matter is, the first step toward being deceived, as you'll see here in 2 Peter 3, is finding fault with Scripture, with the written word of God. Then we find in 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18, out of that comes a failure to be steadfast. He says, they rest the other Scriptures, as Paul's and the other Scriptures, to their own destruction. When we don't submit to the word of God, the Scripture, simply... We destroy ourselves. Verse 17, Ye therefore, beloved, said, you, I'm, I'm pointing out to some who rest the Scriptures and they destroy themselves. They're unstable and they're unlearned because they rest the Scriptures. Verse 17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, you've got an advantage. You know some things ahead of time. Beware lest ye also. Notice what he said? Just like these others who rest the Scriptures, you can also rest the Scriptures. Beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. He said, don't be like those who wrestle the Scriptures, who rest the Scriptures to their own destruction, or you will fall from your own salvation. Your own what? Steadfastness. Good man. Remember what good manners are? Good moral habits. You know what 1 Corinthians 15 ends in? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abound in the work of the Lord. You know what 1 Corinthians 15 was all about? Someone had begun to doubt and question the doctrine of the resurrection. And Paul said, don't you let them get to you. The resurrection of Christ is true. Your future resurrection from the dead is true. Therefore, because the word of God, the scripture is true, be steadfast, unmovable, always abound in the work of the Lord. When we start finding fault with scripture, next thing you know, we'll fail to be steadfast. We'll fall from our own steadfastness and then we'll have a false perception of sin. Remember what 1 Corinthians 15, 33 said? Be not deceived, evil communications Corrupt good manners. There are people who get to a place in their Christian life, they think they're invincible. I've had men say to me concerning how near or how close or friendly they would get to a woman that wasn't their wife. Well, I think I'm a mature enough Christian, I can handle it. Ooh, that's dangerous. That is dangerous. Meaning there's a confidence I can be around a person who might threaten my good morals and my good conduct, but I'm mature enough to handle that kind of temptation. Ephesians chapter 5, very quickly. Again, we are, we're, I'm working on getting done here. Ephesians chapter 5, the same line of thought is given when he's talking about manner of life. He's not talking about how to be saved. He's talking about how to live because we're saved. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks, for this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He said, you know that unbelievers that are characterized by this sinful life, they're not part of God's kingdom. Verse 6, what's he say? Let no man deceive you with vain words. 
Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. He said, you know that the way that unbelievers live are they live that way because they're unbelievers. So don't let anybody talk you into thinking that that kind of conduct is okay in your life. It's not. One might say, but our, oh, the wickedness of our culture and the pressures. Corinth was as wicked as our culture is. It was vile, vile things everywhere. My point to us tonight, God's point to us tonight is, be not deceived. If you become friendly with sin, you're not going to change the sin into good. It's going to corrupt your good manners. It'll break down your godly living. And so then we find fault with Scripture. We fail to be steadfast. We have a false perception of sin that the sins of the past are okay in the present because we're saved by grace. No, no, no. And then he says, of course, friendship and fellowship with the sinful comes as a result. When I can get along... Look here. Let's say we have somebody that we know we know claims to be a Christian and they are living actively, unrepentant, in in immoral, fornicating or adulterating lifestyle. And if we can become friendly with them, knowing that's the way they are continuously living, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 5, we know that a brother or sister is living in such a way, we're not to eat with them. A fornicator, a drunkard, an idolater, talking about Christian fellowship. That Christian fellowship, we don't hate them, we don't despise them, but the Christian fellowship isn't there because they're not right. Meaning, if I can have a coworker that I know is living a godless life and fraternize with them and, and get along with them and go out places, I'm not talking about being kind, you know that. I'm talking about developing deep and abiding friendships. God says it will corrupt, it will break you down. We must maintain a proper attitude towards sin. Let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. And if we start communicating with the lost, let's think tonight specifically how that looks. How do we get into friendships with, with evil communications? Okay? We can all agree that fornication and adultery and sodomy and drunkenness and, and all these unclean things, we can agree that bitterness and backbiting, these are all evil, they are things that are destructive, covetousness and envy. How do we get into that where we are spending personal uh, time getting close with people like that? Number one, just in our, in our, in our human, and I'm not talking about, you, can, you and I cannot choose who lives in our household, amen? As far as whose children that are born and living there, mates we're married to, the answer, of course, is not to leave somebody in a marriage that's not living right. We understand all that. But I would say this, there's still not fellowship when someone's not living right. But I believe this, in the world we live in, it can be a co-worker we get close to, it can be, um, it can be a host of things. But in a, in a virtual age, you realize through social media, evil communications can corrupt good manners. The books we read, the people we spend time with on a screen, and evil communications, if we find our fellowship around people that are engaging and, and living sinfully vile lives in time, you know what it'll do? We'll conform to them instead of them conforming to us. That's a, that's a Bible principle. Be not deceived, he says. Be not deceived. Here's what's happened. We have an entire generation of people in church who are deceived in thinking if we go get really close to people that are living really ungodly and act like what they're doing is not bad, we'll win them to Christ. God says, no. You know what? Tell me what's happened. 
Have we led people through our lives to repentance? Or have they got corruption inside the house of God? The evil communications have corrupted our good manners. And so tonight, good manners are vital. Not for getting to heaven, but for getting other people to heaven. We've heard this, we know this. But I thought it interesting to follow that terminology, manner of person, manner of life, good manners. What's the habit of my life? And tonight, there may be some area, there may be some relationship that I'm allowing myself to get too close to someone that I know is promoting sin. Love them, pray for them. But if our lives don't call them to repentance, their lives will call us to repentance. And we'll, we'll be corrupted. And so, as God has spoken to us, let's respond obediently. Mm-hmm.